Well, thank you. I'd like to offer you uh, quite a different case study, a case study about change in farming, specifically livestock farming. And I'm going to start with a story of change that is probably very familiar to you. And then I'm going to take it apart. And I'm going to offer you a different account of change, which I think is a much more fruitful and productive way of thinking about how change happens. So in academic, popular and, popular and political discourse, the middle decades of the 20th century are widely portrayed as a period of dramatic change in British farming, to which the organic movement offered the only serious countercurrent. The jumping off point for these changes is the traditional time-honoured system of mixed farming, which is believed to have prevailed up to the interwar period. This is a system of small farms, in which crops were fertilised by and fed to various species of livestock. Few in number, these animals were kept in largely extensive conditions and known individually to their keepers. War is widely regarded as the catalyst to change in this system. In the 1930s, Britain imported two-thirds of its food. So when German U-boat bombing and the need to preserve scarce shipping space for other commodities needed to wage war prompted an all-out drive to increase British food production. Driven by the carrot of stable prices and the stick of dispossession, farmers worked to meet the nation's nutritional needs, adopting tractors, milking machines, chemical fertilizers and pesticides to maximize their outputs of crops and milk. This regime continued for a decade post-war as global food shortages, continued rationing and balance of payments deficits caused the government to keep on increasing production targets and offering substantial support for farmers to meet them. Thereafter, we are told intensification was an inevitable result of government policy, a new norm driven by agricultural economics and the rapid advance of science and technology, with the only significant resistance coming from a small body of organic farmers represented by the Soil Association. From the late 1950s, the British government began to reduce agricultural subsidies, forcing farmers to become more efficient in order to survive. This is when we see battery farming coming in, the large-scale indoor pig production. Many farmers just gave up at this point. Others turned to newly developed housing, milking and lighting systems, to manufactured feeds, pesticides, antibiotics and genetic hybrid stock. But as output rose, prices fell, forcing farmers to search for additional efficiency gains through additional technological innovations, this is the so-called technology treadmill. Well, cheaper food was welcomed by consumers but the animal welfare effects of this system were condemned, most famously by Ruth Harrison, whose seminal 1964 book, Animal Machines, claimed that animals were being reduced to standardized units of mass production that were, I quote, not allowed to live before it dies. Meanwhile, Rachel Carson's 1962 volume, Silent Spring, and Rachel Carson also wrote the introduction to Animal Machines, so there is a definite link between these, these works. Rachel Carson revealed the environmental damage wrought by agricultural pesticide use. 
Nevertheless, the trend of factory farming continued, stimulated by Britain's membership at the EEC, which made farmers eligible to very generous production subsidies under the common agricultural policy. Subsequently, as the increasing globalisation of trade led to competition from cheap imports and the rising power of supermarkets cut profits to the bone, farmers were forced to continue searching for additional efficiency savings through larger flocks and herds, managed with the aid of increasingly complex technologies, robotic milking, electronic tagging, aerosol vaccines, to name but a few. And as seen in the statistics of production, the average dairy farm in 1939 contained just 15 cows. But by 1985, it contained 63 cows. And the production levels of those cows was rapidly increasing, just as the rapid growth rates of poultry meant that they lived just six weeks before being sent to the slaughterhouse. At the same time, the percentage of household income dropped, spent on food, dropped from 33% in the 1950s to around 15% today. But what lies behind these statistics and these overarching trends? How much do we really know about what was happening on the farm? Is our propensity either to celebrate the rise of cheap food or to condemn the manner in which it was obtained blinding us to the possibility of learning productive lessons from the past? Is it correct to portray mainstream farmers as either exploitative, profit-seeking villains or passive victims of forces beyond their control? Is it true that an inexorable march of science and technology coupled with a decline in profits made intensification an inevitable new norm? Unless farmers were prepared to get off the treadmill altogether or opt for organic farming, which for much of its history was regarded as radical and cranky. Well, I've looked at preliminary answers to these questions and some research I've been conducting on the history of, of livestock farming. And although this research is very far from complete in species coverage and chronology, it's beginning to reveal quite a different picture from this very rapid overview I've just sketched out now. And this is a, a, a picture which I've built on um, a largely untapped resource, which are the textbooks and the magazines that were written by and for livestock farmers. And these sources make it possible to move beyond the stereotypes of farming greed and victimhood to capture the practices and attitudes of ordinary farmers as they grappled with changing economic climates and new technological possibilities. They reveal that both the shape of farming systems and the treatment of animals within them was more diverse than we generally appreciate, and that there were real alternatives to this technological treadmill. One of my key finds is that there was no straightforward, linear, progressive transition from traditional mixed farming to modern, intensive systems. Different types of systems coexisted at different types in history. The balance between them varied according to the context and the, and the preference of individual farmers. So the supposedly traditional era of mixed farms, the 1930s, was actually a time of pretty rapid innovation and change in certain sectors. So we get farmers experimenting with uh, keeping very large numbers of pigs in farms that essentially looked like concrete jungles and factories. 
um, other farmers moved on to the so-called industrialised cow systems, in which animals were kept um, primarily indoors, forcibly fed, and their production was rapidly monitored and measured, and their breeding was selectively governed. In wartime, which we're told is a time of all-out production, of rapid modernisation, actually some existing forms of modernisation went backwards because there simply wasn't enough food to keep pigs and poultry in those intensive systems in wartime. That food was needed for humans. So that resulted in a reversion to swill-fed pigs kept in traditional styes and backyard chickens. Meanwhile, the labour that was needed to create, monitor and manipulate elite high-yielding cows was redirected towards effecting a generalised average increase across the board. So paradoxically, intensification is, is in some ways more of a feature of interwar farming than it was of wartime farming. Well, it was widely known by experts and producers that while intensive indoor production systems could offer greater profits, they were also very expensive. And they also pose real challenges to livestock health, that new pharmaceutical technologies like antibiotics were not necessarily effective in managing. So this meant that even after the lifting of wartime restrictions, there was no wholehearted rush to intensify. In fact, we get farming systems like this appearing in the supposed decades of rapid intensification. Pig farmers experimenting with low input, low output outdoor systems that pursued productive efficiency through innovative uses of existing resources. But these farmers too considered themselves to be modern and featured as role models within pages of the farming press, thereby demonstrating there was no universal preordained path to agricultural modernity. Economic assessments of pig production conducted in the mid-1960s concluded that both intensive and extensive approaches were equally viable, economically speaking, and that it was impossible to know which would prevail in future. While the balance did eventually tip in favour of indoor production, 1970s efforts to extend this to sheep did not succeed. A number of other innovations, such as slatted floors for dairy cows and battery cages housing very large numbers of birds, were abandoned. Which shows that even when intensification was adopted as a norm, the methods for achieving it were far from clear. In fact, they developed largely from trial and error. So it was on-farm innovations, such as disease eradication schemes or novel types of housing, played a really significant role in effecting change and actually often informed the views of the experts that we tend to regard as the prime initiators of change. Well, the considerable discussion that surrounded these shifts to factory-style production revealed that organic farmers were not exclusive in their rejection of artificiality and their claims that one must farm in harmony with nature. Well into the 1960s, nature and the natural featured widely in mainstream farming discourse. And this language was employed not just by those pursuing the outdoor systems, but those who wanted to become very modern, indoor and intensive in their livestock keeping. 
So the language of nature offered a critique of overly intensive systems that con contravened nature's laws, such as this, this quote here, that the, far, the further you get away from nature, the more likely you are to run into trouble, but also a very positive instruction on how, in the transition to indoor systems, one should model the methods of livestock keeping on what was natural to the animal. It is in its natural state, the pig gave chief consideration to air, freedom from drafts and a warm, dry bed. So too should the farmer who attempted to keep these animals in new ways. Similarly, a concern for the welfare of animals as sentient individuals cannot be regarded as the sole preserve of critics and campaigners like Ruth Harrison. While farmers clearly cared for some animals more than others, I mean, breeding stock that lived for years, obviously, and it meant more to them than a, a broiler chicken that lasted for six weeks, um, and also because although farmers were ultimately concerned with making money, I found continued evidence of their fondness and regard for livestock, even as they worked to fashion them into identical cogs within a production machine. So we see... Um, Two quotes from, from experts who are responsible for helping, deeply invested experts in helping farmers to farm in more intensive ways, saying, we, we, must, we must study the pig's point of view if we want to make money. We can't just ride slipshod over nature, we must understand it. And similarly, this is a veterinary scientist who, at the very same time as he was trying to encourage farmers to adopt universal methods of disease control was telling that actually there's no such thing as a universal cow. You know, there's no standard cow that gives a standard volume of milk through a standard teat orifice. All cows are different. So this sort of shows us that utilitarian views and romantic views of livestock could and did coexist. It was not a simple choice of one or the other. Well, these necessarily very brief observations I think are important in suggesting that while choices on how to farm livestock were constrained by economic circumstances and moulded by science and technology, they were not wholly determined by them. Farmers still possessed considerable agency to test, adopt, adjust and abandon methods of livestock keeping. They didn't follow a predetermined route to agricultural modernity. Rather, they decided what modernity was and how they wanted to get there within the bounds laid down by science, economics, and politics. So in order to understand how norms changed within modern farming, and indeed what those norms were, we need to pay due heed to farming choices and attitudes, a sort of critical history of change from below, instead of falling into the same lazy old tropes of inevitability, greed, and victimhood. These tropes may be useful in advancing present-day political agendas, but they only obscure the past and prevent it from contributing meaningfully to the present and future. In today's context of growing food insecurity, resource scarcity, environmental degradation, and concerns for animal welfare, farming practices are still subject to intensive discussion. Historical analysis could contribute to this discussion by recovering forgotten farming methods that could prove useful in the future and demonstrating the capacity of farmers to develop their own meaningful responses to a changing and challenging world. Thank you.